0: Good afternoon, it's wonderful to see what a large audience here. Welcome to the Winter Quarter Autobiographical Reflections lecture sponsored by the Stanford Maritime Council. Following today's talk, there will be our traditional reception, a chance for old friends to reconnect, and I hope for some new acquaintances to be made as well. With staffing assistance provided by the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education's Residential residential Programs Office, the Council is launching an experimental program to connect emeriti who would like to meet today's undergraduates to do so in the dorms. You'll shortly be receiving a letter from us describing the project and inviting you, if you're interested, to submit information on your background, your current interests, and some topics you'd like to discuss with students, whether over an informal meal or in more formal public speaking settings. This information will be conveyed to the dorm resident as fellows, many of them faculty, who will decide whom to invite to participate in a given event. I mention this simply by way of advance notice that an opportunity For you, if you wish to get back in touch with undergraduates, will soon be available. Introducing today's speaker, James Sheehan, is David Kennedy, Jim's department colleague and occasional co instructor. Together, they taught the immensely populated, popular, populated as well, immensely popular uh, 2015 continuing studies course. 1945, The Making of the Postwar World. In this quarter, they're teaching the origins of democratic society, Europe, and America in the modern age. David is the Donald J. McLachlan Professor of History Emeritus, a 2000 Pulitzer Prize winner for his book, Freedom from Fear, and the founding director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West. He told his own story in a memorable autobiographical reflections lecture a few years ago. I give you a superb historian to introduce another one.
1: Thank you, David. So in the last week of May in 1937, two events of historical significance took place in San Francisco. On May 27th, 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge opened to traffic. And four days later, Jim Sheehan was born. (laughs) And in the intervening eight decades, it's been an open question, which of those two nearly simultaneous creations has enjoyed the more illustrious career? Now, to be sure the bridge weighs more than Jim, it's been photographed more often. It's borne more vehicular and pedestrian traffic than he has. And, dubious honor, it has figured in more death leaps. But for all of its stature, the bridge simply could never have been admitted to Stanford as Jim was in 1954, <laughs> or even to Berkeley, where Jim earned his PhD in 1964. And has the bridge ever written a single word, much less five books? including the magisterial and definitive study, German History, 1770 to 1866, which is among the most distinguished volumes in the prestigious series, The Oxford History of Modern Europe. Not to mention the widely acclaimed Where Have All the Soldiers Gone, an uncommonly shrewd and insightful assessment of the nature of civil society in modern Europe. And can the bridge claim to have authored scores of scholarly articles and hundreds of book reviews and opinion pieces, several in foreign languages? Has the bridge ever been elected to membership in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, or the American Philosophical Society, or the Orden pour le Mérite, among the world's oldest honorary societies founded in 1740 by Frederick the Great of Prussia? Jim has been a fellow of the Orden for more than a decade one of just 40 members. And in fact, if you go online to the Wikipedia site to learn more about the Orden, you will find that article uh, illustrated with the uh, figures of two people, Manfred von Richthofen, a.k.a. the Red Baron, and James J. Sheehan. So take that bridge. (laughs) And much as we all love the bridge, it must also be acknowledged that the bridge has never been elected chair of the Stanford Faculty Senate or president of the American Historical Association, our profession's highest honor, nor supervised a single PhD dissertation, nor conducted either an undergraduate or graduate seminar, nor mesmerized thousands of eager and appreciative students in many, many lecture halls, nor won teaching awards at two different universities, Northwestern and Stanford, including the Walter J. Gores Award. So I submit that when we towed up the ledger sheets with even a modicum of objectivity, it's clear that at a minimum, Jim Sheehan is no less less accomplished in his chosen realms of scholarship and teaching than the Golden Gate Bridge is in the realms of engineering and infrastructure. So I want to say a special word about teaching. It's customary on occasions like this to say something about what an honor and a privilege it is to introduce the speaker. And surely it is for me both an honor and a privilege to introduce Jim on this or any other occasion, but I want also to testify about what an exceptional grace it has been for me on several occasions over more than 20 years to teach alongside Jim both in the seminar room and in the lecture hall. He is quite simply the most gifted classroom teacher I've ever known. He's a model of clarity, accessibility, and erudition all delivered without histrionics or pedagogical theatricality, but always in the measured voice of cool reason and deep learning. I have learned untold amounts from him, not only about our shared scholarly subject of history, but about the arts of teaching, and about clear thinking, and about friendship. So please join me in welcoming my consummately accomplished colleague and my precious and cherished friend, Jim Sheehan.
2: Well, David, thank you very much. Um, You will see in these remarks, uh, there are two themes that weave their way through them. One is luck, blind luck, for which I take no credit, and the other is generosity, the generosity of very many people, a good number of whom are in this room who have given me uh, the gift of their friendship. Now, don't worry, I I don't intend to begin with one of those prolonged litanies of gratitude that we associate with winners of Academy Awards, Um, but I do wanna thank David and let him personify and represent uh, those many, many people who have enriched my life in ways too numerous to mention. So thank you, David, for that introduction, uh, and thank you for the friendship and so much else. Now, my title, Living in History. Uh, The title uh, illustrates my long-held belief that the most complex word in any title is usually the shortest. In this case, of course, that word is the preposition in, which has in the title at least two meanings. First, living in history makes the obvious point that as a historian, I've spent a large part of my time living in the past, studying events that happened long ago, trying to understand men and women long dead, and fighting battles already lost and won. But living in history also refers to the fact that like everyone else, I live in a present that will become history, and that is therefore a part of an unfolding past. The great Swiss historian, Jakob Burkhardt captured the distinctive difficulty of understanding this second sort of living in history with the memorable metaphor that was quoted in the advance notice to this talk, but I'll read it to you again. We would, Burkhardt wrote, love to know the wave that carries us on the ocean of history, but we ourselves are the wave. Now these two ways of living in history are obviously inseparable since our efforts to understand the past, that is to understand how things were then and there, are always done in the present, in the here, and the now. This afternoon, I'd like to make some tentative reflections about these two ways of living in history and the connection between them. I should say at once that I will not talk about my private history, and this is not because love and marriage and parenthood and friendship uh, were and are not important to me. Indeed, quite the opposite is true. These things are so important, so close to my heart, uh, that I simply could not and cannot find the voice in which to talk about them in a forum like this. Instead, I will offer you what the Germans would call, and one of the things this talk will do is a kind of surreptitious German lesson, as you'll see, What I will try to do is what the Germans would call a Bildungsroman, a novel of education in which the protagonist, often, as in this case, a young man from the provinces, confronts a number of situations and individuals that eventually help him find his place in the world. Where to begin? David Abernethy, when he invited me to give this talk, suggested that many of my distinguished predecessors had talked about the importance of some early experience on their development as scholars, a, a childhood interest, perhaps, or a particularly inspiring grade school teacher. Now, I had my share, maybe more than my share, of good teachers, and I have no doubt that my childhood influenced me in many significant ways. But I must confess to you that neither had much to do with the subjects to which I have devoted my scholarly life. My parents had little interest in history and absolutely no interest in the history of Europe. Irish history, the nightmare that haunted James Joyce's Stephen Daedalus, did not haunt us. The European experience seemed very far away indeed from the California where, for white people anyway, historical identities, while present, remained rather weak, probably because they were not often reinforced by those kinds of ethnic animosities that were so present in other parts of the United States. Similarly, the Catholic Church, which was the moral center of my family's existence, was at once profoundly traditional and oddly unhistorical, or it might be better to say, remarkably unaware of the historical forces that had shaped its character. My boyhood was spent in the pre-Vatican II Church, confident, affluent, but firmly fixed in the present. In my Jesuit high school, the level of instruction was high. Latin, as you'd expect, was very well taught. These were chemistry and physics, perhaps, perhaps less predictably. I had a wonderful English teacher. But history, history was left in the not very capable hands of the football and basketball coaches. The closest I can come to locating an early influence on my interest in history was an uncle, cherished very much, an uncle who collected books about the American West and had a particular interest in the life and times of George Armstrong Custer. At one time, I knew a lot about the passionate debates about what really happened on the Little Bighorn River in June of 1876. Custer's last stand was the first, and for many years, the only historiographical controversy to capture my attention. Looking back, I now think that what would fascinate me about Europe, and especially about Germany, that is the histories from which and with which I have lived, is how very different they were from the peaceful, prosperous, and provincial world of Irish Catholic San Francisco in which three generations of my family had lived. When I first went to Germany in 1961, that was, as you will remember, the year the Berlin Wall was built. It's also the year that Adolf Eichmann was put on trial in Jerusalem. I found myself for the first time in a place where the past was ever present. Even 16 years after the end of the Third Reich, the people I met were constantly aware of the history in which and with which they lived. Now, before talking about my relationship to Germany, I suppose I have to say, a few words about my four years as a student at Stanford. Although I must admit that it was a happy day when I realized that no one would ever again look at my undergraduate transcript. (laughs) Tocqueville once remarked that America has the privilege of making survivable mistakes. And in that way, to quote, the song by Jacques Brel, Stanford was like America for me. Stanford in the 50s was just beginning its remarkable climb to world-class status, and in many ways the university I entered as a freshman in 1954 was a different institution from the one to which I would return as a faculty member a quarter of a century later. Nevertheless. Then, as now, Stanford was a deeply tolerant, rather loosely knit place with lots of quite different student subcultures. Then, and I suspect that may still be true, it was a place where it was possible to get a very fine education, in part because a number of undergraduates didn't particularly want one. I'm afraid that I belong to this group until sometime in my junior year, when for reasons I can't identify, I decided finally to start taking advantage of the extraordinary opportunities that were available to me. In acting on this newfound sense of purpose and direction, two teachers were especially important. The first was Donald Davidson, one of the 20th century's most important and influential philosophers, who taught a wonderful course on ethics in which he would stand up and critically examine important philosophical texts. I had previously taken philosophy courses, but Davidson's was uniquely challenging and inspiring. And it was also instructive in another way because I left his lectures convinced that while I could understand and appreciate what he was doing, I would never be able to do it myself. I could be and I would remain an avid consumer of philosophical texts, but I would never produce one of my own. Years later I met Davidson at a dinner party in Berkeley and I told him that he was one of the few teachers who had changed my life. I didn't say how, nor must I admit did he seem particularly interested in finding out. (laughs) My other undergraduate teacher, influential undergraduate teacher was Gordon Wright who had joined Stanford's history department when I was a senior. I took his course on modern France, beautifully crafted set of lectures that remains, for me, the gold standard for what a history course should be like. More important, I persuaded Gordon to give me a course of directed readings, a tutorial in which we would meet for an hour each week to talk about a book. Uh, This was, I now realize, uh, an incredibly, and and I should say, and those of you who knew Gordon will, will agree, a characteristically generous thing for him to do. It introduced me to a world of intellectual exchange that I found thrilling. I mean, what could be more satisfying than talking to a very smart, learned person about good books on important subjects? If this is what historians got paid to do, I thought it might be for me. The prospect of law school which had become for me, as it was for so many undecided humanities students, a a kind of potential harbor from which to escape the stormy sea of postgraduate uncertainty, the prospect of law school faded, and haphazardly, and at the last minute, I applied to some doctoral programs in history. Now, I don't want to overstate the strength of my vocation to be a historian nor to underestimate the depth of my ignorance about what this would involve. Under different circumstances, I might have taken a year off to think about my future, which is certainly what I have since advised students in a similar state to do. But in 1958, the selective service office law effectively precluded that option. The choice was between going to graduate school or spending two years in the Army, performing peacetime duties, which according to my friends who had been drafted, turned out to involve long periods of boredom, punctuated by occasional humiliations. In any case, I decided to accept UC Berkeley's offer of admission to its doctoral program. this decision, taken with some reluctance, and an almost total obliviousness about its implications, turned out to be one that I have never for a single moment regretted. It was a sign of my quite appalling ignorance of what graduate school might be like, but I was shocked and surprised when, early in the summer after graduation, I received a letter from the director of graduate studies informing me that while I had been accepted into the program, Before I could enroll in any graduate level courses, I would have to pass an examination demonstrating my proficiency in a foreign language. This presented a serious problem. I had studied Latin and Greek in high school. They were the only two languages St. Ignatius offered. Latin was the modern language. Uh, But they were both too rusty to be of any use. This meant that if I were to make a remotely plausible claim to competence, it would have to be in German, the language I had studied, if that's the verb to describe my deportment in those days, during my first two years at Stanford. Then I had decided to study German, which was, after all, perhaps the single most consequential academic decision that I would make as an undergraduate, was the result of a piece of advice from a man married to one of my cousins whose father had studied medicine in Vienna before the First World War. My cousin's husband, a successful physician in San Francisco, continued to believe that German was the language of science, and that it would surely enhance what my family hoped in vain, as it turned out, would be my own medical career. Now, this piece of advice, of course, was about a half a century out of date. I used to think that it was fairly comical that my scholarly interests should have begun in this way. But I now recognize that my decision to study German was a belated instance of Germany's enormous influence on American academic life. It just took a while for this influence to find its way to the Sheehan household in the fog-bound precincts of St. Francis Woods. That summer, to perform the pedagogical equivalent of CPR on my linguistic skills, I engaged a tutor, Frau Strauss, a widow of a certain age, who provided me with bad coffee, stale cookies, and briskly efficient language instruction. I learned more German during the hours I spent in her Berkeley apartment than I had in my six quarters at Stanford. And this was the opening skirmish in what would turn out to be a long twilight struggle with the German language, which I eventually learned to speak like a native, although not perhaps a native of Germany. Frau Strauss was also the first representative of a group of people who would play an immensely important part in my life. Refugees from Hitler's Germany who brought their language, their culture, and their history to the United States. Several of them will make an appearance in the next few minutes. Thanks in no small part to the efforts of Frau Strauss, I managed to pass the necessary language exam, so I was able to enroll in a graduate research seminar on 19th century Germany. The teacher was named Werner Ongres, called Tom by his friends, another refugee. Tom Angers had grown up in an assimilated Jewish family in Berlin. They'd fled to the Netherlands when Hitler came to power. His father returned to Germany, was caught and killed at Auschwitz. His mother and brothers survived the war hiding in Amsterdam. Tom got to the United States where he was promptly drafted. Tom Ungers was small, rather cherubic in appearance, but he turned out to be a very tough, effective soldier. He made his first paratroop jump on D-Day into France, was awarded various awards for his service. All of this, by the way, I found out much later. This was not something that Tom Ungers was going to talk about. Certainly his own story, dramatic as it might have been, was not gonna interfere with the serious business of teaching German history. Although I was totally unaware of it when I applied, in the late 50s, Berkeley was in the process of becoming one of the world's greatest history departments. With particular strength in the history of Europe, the area to which my shaky claim to competence in German had brought me. And you will now already see the degree to which blind luck plays a role in this story. When I arrived in the fall of 1958, the leading uh, European historian was a man named Raymond J. Sontag, formidable figure, charismatic lecturer, and to me at least, extremely generous mentor. Like most great teachers, Ray Sontag's influence came less from what he taught than from who he was. During the two years I spent as his teaching and research assistant. I learned a lot of history, but much more important, by observing the way he went about his work and how he lived, I began to learn a little bit about what it meant to be a historian. The other two senior scholars, both hired about the time I got to Berkeley, were also important, and the first was Karl Schorsky, the author of a brilliant study of German social democracy, who was then beginning to work on that series of essays about Vienna for which he would win the Pulitzer Prize in 1981. Uh, Karl had the wonderful ability, he died last year, by the way, at 100, he had the wonderful ability of inspiring, of being inspiring without being intimidating, of making even an ill-prepared novice feel like he was somehow a companion on a shared intellectual journey. Great gift for a teacher to have, it seems to me. Hans Rosenberg, uh, the second German historian to leave a lasting mark on my life, was both inspiring and intimidating. Uh, He was, in fact, the only teacher I ever saw who could reduce a grown man to tears. Not by being mean, but simply by turning the full force of his critical intelligence on the student's efforts. Rosenberg, I eventually brought myself to call him Hans, although never with much confidence or conviction. Uh, Rosenberg had been a student of Friedrich Meinecke, a great German historian, who had attracted many gifted young scholars to the University of Berlin in the late 1920s. Even in that stellar group, Rosenberg had stood out. He'd published two books and a score of important articles by the time he was 30. A Jew, at least by the Nazi's definition, a left-winging, left-leaning left defender of the Republic, there was, needless to say, no place for Rosenberg in Hitler's Germany. He fled, first to England, then to the United States where he taught at Brooklyn College before finally moving to Berkeley. The road from his precociously promising beginning in Berlin to the endowed chair at Berkeley was long, arduous, without private means, struggling with a language he never quite mastered, burdened with heavy teaching responsibilities. He published relatively little for the first two decades after his emigration, and yet he never gave up. And by the time I met him, his work had begun to have enormous influence, especially over, a uh, new generation of historians in west germany rosenberg and somewhat later his berlin his fellow berlin student felix gilbert were the two members of the emigre generation that were most important to me it is i think impossible to under overestimate the significance of this group of exiled artists writers intellectuals for american culture in the middle decades of the 20th century. I suspect that if many of you reflect for a moment about the recent history of your disciplines, you will find German refugees in a prominent position. For American students of European history, emigre scholars like Rosenberg and Gilbert were role models for at least Three reasons. First was their erudition, and by that I don't mean simply their command of the sources, but that distinctive blend of of learning and cultivation that that marked them as, as intellectuals. Second was their cosmopolitanism, by which I mean not simply the breadth of their experiences, but also the breadth of their sympathies. Sympathy, A breadth of sympathy which enabled them to embrace the new world into which fate had thrust them without totally abandoning their attachment to the old. This is a complicated matter. It certainly has to do with the fact that they were assimilated German Jews who had been shaped by a national culture to which they belonged and yet were, in some important ways, not a part of. In any case, their cosmopolitanism was not a pious sentiment but a hard-won reckoning with complex loyalties. And even for the most best adjusted of them, it was not without its costs. But it was exemplary to young Americans like me, who were then voluntarily setting out to try to live and work in a historical world that was not our own. Finally, and, and, and most important, there was the way people like Rosenberg and Gilbert and so many others personified what it was like to live in history. All of them to some degree had felt Nazism's foul breath on the back of their necks. And whether they talked about it or not, this gave their work an undeniable moral urgency and purpose. Despite the pains of immigration, the burden of advancing years, they kept working. And as such, they remained living testimonies to the enduring value of the scholars vocation. In their presence no one could doubt that history mattered. And more than anything else this was their most precious gift to me and for the one and the one for which I am most grateful. The emigres also provided a transatlantic connection in another way by introducing young Americans like myself to the new generation of German scholars who were just then beginning to establish their careers and leave their mark on the discipline. These people, almost all of them men, uh, usually a few years older than I was, I am, uh, were members of what was called the Hitler Youth Generation. That is to say they were too young to be active participants in Nazism's crimes, but old enough to know that If the regime had lasted just a little longer, they would have been deeply involved. They were also the exchange student generation, many of whom had come to the United States in the 1950s and had been decisively influenced by what seemed, and in some ways was, a vibrant, prosperous, self-confident democracy. Intellectually, all of us were engaged in trying to understand what we can call the German question, which amounts to a cluster of questions about the origins and character of National Socialism. Initially, the most important dimension of the German question seemed to be why German democracy failed in 1933. But by the time I became a serious student of German history, the emphasis had begun to shift from the immediate to the long-run problems of German democracy. The issue was now to trace the roots of the Nazi catastrophe back into the German past, especially into the 19th century. What was it about Germany's development that produced the series of political calamities that culminated in 1933. Why had Germany deviated so sharply and tragically from the West? Why was Germany's route to modernity a special, separate, deviant path, what the Germans call a Sonderweg to catastrophe? Now, many of you will recognize that the way we posed this question was shaped by a series of assumptions about the nature of modernization, assumptions that were part of that grand narrative of historical development conventionally called modernization theory. And not surprisingly, this approach to the German past was very much a transatlantic project. Among its earliest and most influential protagonists had been members of the emigre generation, and among its most devoted practitioners were young scholars who had spent a formative year or two as exchange students in the United States. The effort to define a German Zondervaig, Germany's separate deviant path to modernity, was what the historian of science, Thomas Kuhn, has called a paradigm. That is, a set of assumptions that provide a consensus about the questions that need to be posed and a framework within which to place the inevitable disagreements that arise about how these questions should be answered. As Kuhn noted, one of the reasons why a paradigm is influential is that it can generate research problems, empirical puzzles that Kuhn calls normal science. In the case of the Zonderweg many of these research problems had to do with things that Germans didn't have, or at least supposedly didn't have. An authentic revolution, a politically self-conscious bourgeoisie, a critical intellectual elite, or with failures and weaknesses, parliamentary government, democratic parties, or the one in which my own research initially was devoted, a successful liberal movement. The Sonderbeg was never without its critics, and over time it has lost much of its hold on historians' imagination. But it lingers on, largely because no one has come up with an equally compelling substitute. As Francis Bacon wisely noted centuries ago, on waxen tablets, you cannot write anything new until you rub out the old. With the mind, it is not so. There, you cannot rub out the old until you have written in the new. And no one has had a new paradigm of force equal in power and influence to the Zonderweg. The Zonderweg took as its basic unit of analysis the German state that was created between 1866 and 1871, the state that was destroyed at the end of the Second World War. In the 1970s, and about the time I decided I would leave Northwestern and return to Stanford I had begun to wonder if this was the only way or even the best way to think about the German past. The immediate impetus for this was that I had agreed to write the volume on Germany for the Oxford history of modern Europe. Now, my volume is supposed to cover the period before 1866, that is, before there was a German nation state, and it was designed to proceed Gordon Craig's extraordinarily successful, wonderful account of the years between 1866 and 1945. I quickly realized that the most interesting question about my project was what the subject was. Craig's book had been about the life and death of a nation state. I did not have that. That was, of course, an important way of thinking about German history. No sensible person could deny its significance. But if one stepped back and looked at the German past beyond the 1866 to 1945 division, looked at it, in other words, in a broader perspective, it seemed to me there were many Germanies, many German histories, many German pasts, some larger, including, let us say, Austria, Switzerland, some more narrow, not just Prussia, but um, any of the number of regional areas which are and remain important for German-speaking Europe. The German created in 1866 was surely not an accident, but it was also not inevitable and surely not the only possible outcome to what I began to see as a complex, open-ended historical process. I tried to make these arguments in an essay entitled What is German History? That served as a kind of prologue to the book I eventually wrote. Although I didn't make it explicit in this essay, there was a political, a contemporary dimension to what might seem like a purely historical argument. And that had to do with how one thought about the two German states that had emerged from the wreckage of Hitler's Third Reich. Now, I had no illusion uh, about the character of East Germany, the so-called the German Democratic Republic, that, that rather shabby, mean spirited, if, if really murderous regime that had been imposed by the Red Army on the Russian zone of occupation. But like many of those who were uncomfortable with Cold War orthodoxies, I believe that the best way to make life better for the people living in East Germany was to accept the legitimacy of the regime, to normalize relations with it, and hope for the best. This meant accepting the demise of Bismarck's Germany and abandoning, or at least indefinitely postponing, the goal of recreating it, which remained the official policy of both West Germany and its Western allies. In this sense, my modest scholarly efforts to rethink the German past were shaped by the political climate of the 1970s in which political initiatives like Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik were trying to open up new possibilities for the German future. After finishing my book on German history from 1770 to 1866, I went to Berlin. The month was October, the year 1989. Now, I wish I could tell you and that three decades of studying and writing about German history had enabled me to predict the outcome of the crisis that had begun to to unfold throughout Eastern Europe that fall. Unfortunately, there exists in the family archives a letter uh, that I wrote to Peggy uh, during the afternoon of November 9th in which I confidently predicted that the Berlin Wall would not last another year. In a sense, I suppose you could say I was right, even if I, my timing was off by some 364 days and a few hours. I can take some consolation from the fact that I was by no means the only person to be surprised by the fall of the wall on the evening of November 9th a German political science scientist recently called that day the Black Friday of German social science. And although decades of studying German history had not helped me to predict the fall of the wall, they did enormously enrich my experiences in Berlin during the months thereafter. I vividly remember walking around the Reichstag building just after the wall had opened and thinking about everything that had happened on that date, how a few yards from where I stood, the Weimar Republic had been announced on November 9th, and how a few blocks from where I was, synagogues and and German-Jewish shops had been set on fire during what is called Kristallnacht. Never, Never before, and I had such a powerful feeling of what it was like to have this two senses of living in history of being with the past and in the past. Throughout the rest of 1989 and the first half of 1990, I had a front row seat on the dramatic events that would eventually lead to the end of the German Democratic Republic and the creation of a new Germany. I spent a great deal of time that year talking to people, professors, former government officials, a variety of writers and translators, and while I had been surprised by the events of November 9th, I was not surprised by the fact that without the wall, the East German regime would not survive. It seemed to me that once people were free to leave the East, the choice was between unifying the German states or watching a continuation of that massive movement of population from east to west, what someone at the time called German unification on West German soil. In my mind, the question was not if, but how unification would occur, especially if it could be done in an orderly and peaceful manner. Among the people I spent time with were men and women who had been committed to the regime even if many of them had been somewhat critical of it they were understandably reluctant to accept the fact that it would not survive and watching their gradual painful recognition that the world their world was collapsing around them was a deeply moving instructive experience. A year later, in the spring of 1991, I accompanied my wife, who was giving a series of lectures in various locations in Western Germany. While we were there, everyone we knew was debating the question of whether the new German capital should stay in Bonn, where it had been since 1949, and which most of our friends favored, or moved to Berlin, which I myself, although no one really asked me, although I myself thought was an essential step toward unifying east and west, as well as a necessary acknowledgement of Germans' national identity. Uh, for, For someone who had spent his scholarly life studying the German question and its various aspects The debate over the capital brought past and present together in an especially powerful way. Because what the debate was about, of course, was not just the future, but the past. Not just where Germans' center should be, but how they should think about and imagine the historical road they had traveled. There were, I must admit, moments as I watched this debate when I thought to myself, they're doing this all for me. (laughs) In retrospect, I now realize uh, that this intense engagement with Germany's past, present, and future between 1989 and 1991 marked a turning point in my scholarly interests. After 1991, the German question began to seem less urgent to me than it once had. And while I continued to write about Germany, I was more and more drawn to European, even to global problems. The international system, which had seemed so stagnant during the final stages of the Cold War, was now full of new opportunities and dangers. In both my teaching and research, this new sense of movement suggested different questions. It was, once again, an example of how the present points us towards aspects of the past, how living in history shapes the kind of history we wanna know. That I only became fully aware of this change in my emphasis as I sat down to write these remarks, illustrates Kierkegaard's well-known remark that while we can only understand life backwards, we have to live it forwards. Uh, Finally, a couple of general reflections about living in history. Now you've all heard of L.P. Hartley's famous remark that the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. And in some ways, studying history is a bit like foreign travel. It's sometimes uncomfortable, occasionally tedious but often exciting and almost always instructive both about one's destination and equally important about one's point of departure, the place where every journey begins and ends. And although I think Hartley's metaphor is useful I now think that studying the past may be less like traveling than it is like trying to learn a foreign language, albeit a language without native speakers. Translating the past into the language of the present is filled with many of the same pitfalls that every translator must confront. False friends, words that look alike but aren't, words whose meanings overlap but do not quite coincide, and of course words that can't be translated because there is no contemporary, there is no domestic equivalent. Like translating, doing history is an act of appropriation, a way of making the other our own. And its value lies not so much in the final product as in the process itself. That is, in the attempt, an attempt that is always an inevitably imperfect, incomplete, and inadequate, the attempt to understand people who live in a time and place essentially different from our own, yet who are joined to us by the humanity we share. In keeping with this linguistic metaphor, let me conclude with a quotation from the great classical scholar, Sir Moses Finley, who describes, far more eloquently than I can, what it means to live in history. All art, Finley writes, is dialogue. And so is all interest in the past. One of the parties lives and comprehends in a contemporary way by his very existence. It seems also to be inherent in human existence to turn and return to the past, much as powerful voices may urge us to give it up. The more precisely we listen, And the more we become aware of its pastness, even of its near inaccessibility, the more meaningful the dialogue becomes. In the end, it can only be a dialogue in the present about the present. I am extraordinarily grateful that you've given me this opportunity to engage in a dialogue about my own past. And even more grateful for your willingness to listen so patiently to the results. Thank you. Yeah. Sure,
0: Thank of course. Thank you, Jim, for a marvelous presentation. Uh, we have time for questions with a microphone, so
3: will be chatting. Sir, uh, given, shall we say, present political circumstances, we're all reminded of uh, George Santayana's aphorism, those who do not remember history, such as the Reichstag fire of 1933, are condemned to repeat it, but Mark Twain said, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat itself.
2: Would you comment? Sure. I, um, that's a wonderful question and it's, it's, a, it's a great quote. Um, I don't think history repeats itself, that is I am with Mark Twain. Uh, I don't think it repeats itself because we know what's coming. Um, and uh, that is we know what, is, what has happened. Um, but I think um, I think there's another reason that that quote uh, strikes me as being not quite right. And that is it suggests that we have a choice about whether we remember the past or not. Memory is not a voluntary organ. The question is not whether we remember the past but how we remember it. Um, and if we remember it in a way uh, that, as can so often happen, paralyzes us, or if we remember it in a way that gives us the strength uh, and the confidence to keep acting. So while I certainly, uh, in, in a way, for a historian to question Santiana's remarks seems to be a. And a most ungrateful thing to do. Um, nonetheless, I, I, I think it's, it's important to realize um, that history usually doesn't come again, but that really the, what matters is not the whether or the if, but the how.
3: Jim, when you
0: studied history, if you think back was there a country or a period
2: in which you found the most surprises? And could you share that? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I have to admit that I'm a very promiscuous historian, and I, I, I find it all uh, very interesting. Um, and in a way, Germany, which is the country I, I, I still know best, Continues to survive, surprise me, um, but I think I, I think I'd answer that in, 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 in this way. There are countries like England that look like us but aren't, uh, and then there are countries. And I'm trying to think of where I have been the furthest away from a world that and I think it must have been in the highlands of Guatemala. It was in the highlands of Guatemala. This, this was a world I couldn't make sense of, right? It had no, and, and so in a way, the, the English surprised me because they look like us but aren't. The Guatemalans surprised me because they are so difficult to get your mind around and f- even figure out what their, what their world might, might look like. Surprise is I think an important virtue for historians, maybe for for everybody. Um, As a scientist, I have an amateur's interest in history and I've read some things about Germany over the years. One thing I've always been puzzled about is that at the time of Bismarck and thereafter, why there was not a full coalition of a Germanic people in Europe into one country. There's several perhaps as, as much as a quarter of, of the Germanic people left out, starting with Austria, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, so forth? Well, that's a great question, and it's a it's a complicated question in one sense, but an easy one in another. Uh, and I won't give you the complicated answer right now, but I'll give you the easy answer, and that is because Germany was united by a war in which one side won, the Prussians, and won, one of the... Reasons they won, one of the fruits of their victory was to exclude the Austrians. No one really thought about it, including the Swiss at this point. Excluding the Austrians, so you would have a Prussian-dominated, Protestant-majority country. To bring the Austrians in would not simply question the hegemonal role of Prussia, but it would also change the majority from Protestant to Catholic.
3: Jim, that was a wonderful presentation. I've heard many of them here, including mine own, and none compared to yours.
2: Oh, Saul. <laughs> Saul,
3: you but, know, but, you but know let, the way of my ask, heart I, is through I flooding. I want to ask you a question, however. It seems to me that many of us are thinking, what about what's happening in this country now compared to
2: 1933? Well, I don't. I I think there are lots of things we should know about and worry about, Uh, but I'm not persuaded that 1933 is the most useful historical comparison. Uh, And I'm not for, for two reasons. One is I don't think that there's anything like the crisis that Germans faced in 1933 in the United States. I mean, 1933, there was massive unemployment, there was fighting in the streets, people were getting, uh, there was civil unrest, and this is the second reason, in 1933, you had at least two clear alternatives to the established order, the communists, weak and not able really to take power, but nonetheless a clear alternative, and the Nazis, who had a different vision of how society should be organized. I think the populist forces in the United States, but also I'm gonna include Europe as well, have a lot of anger, a lot of antagonism, but I don't think they have a clear alternative. That goes back to my quote from Francis Bacon, to write something new, you can't just wipe out the old, you have to have something new to put in its place. And I don't believe that I see anywhere around us uh, that alternative. Now it may come, but at the moment at least, I don't see it. I don't see it in Germany, um, I, I don't see it in, in Britain, and I don't see it in the United States. So. Um, That doesn't mean that we aren't in trouble. Uh, That doesn't mean that there isn't a, a kind of a lingering crisis, but I don't think it's a terminal crisis. The Third Republic of France, formed in 1871, was in continual crisis for most of its existence. It lasts until it's done up, it lasts until 1940 when it's put away by the German army, so I mean, democracies are big, leaky, difficult to steer, but also difficult to sink. If that's consolation, I offer it to you.
0: Let's have two or three more questions. Hi. When you were speaking today, I had the sense that German history is 99% a masculine experience, and that uh, women have played a very minor role in the history of the country politically and also in your uh, personal history as a scholar. And then we look at Germany today led by a woman. And I'm wondering whether you could have predicted that in any way or if you would want to comment on the circumstances that has, has, have made her importance possible.
2: Well, that's, that's a wonderful question. I've already, I think, demonstrated my credentials as a predictor are not strong. Uh, and, I, and I do think, I, I, I take your point. I think for my generation, uh, it, the discipline was masculine. A lot of my closest German friends had wives they met while they were studying uh, history. and and you can remind me if I'm missing anybody, but I think most of these women dropped out so their husbands could go on and have the great careers that they did. It it, 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 it didn't seem to be great resentment there, but it was a simple fact. So it was the discipline that I knew. It's much less so now, much, much, much less so now. Uh, For a younger generation, Um, is a much more, uh, much more interested in gender, but also just many, 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 many many more women. Um, The chancellor, surely, another gift we should be thankful for, uh, is interesting, not simply because she's a woman, but she's a pastor's daughter, and she's an Easterner. And all three of these things, I think, are important parts of her, of her character. Um, if you had looked at the Christian Democratic Party in its Adenauer years and predicted that this was the kind of person who was gonna become its most long-serving and successful chancellor, I think you would've had better powers of prediction than I. So, um, I, you know, it goes back to the Santiana question, right, there, 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 there are surprises out there. Okay. Let's
0: have this final question
3: here. I don't know whether this is a question or of an observation. I'm from England originally, and in 1958, I had a job in Braunschweig at the Bay, the Physical technische Bundesanstalt. And so this 20-year-old Englishman looks at the newspapers, was struggling a bit, and he notices that in the typical Brunswick newspaper, there are four pages of advertisements for women trying to find husbands. And I thought, how weird. And I realized that the ratio of marriageable men to marriageable women was about five to one women and they had to advertise to have a chance. That's a tremendous social impact in a country. Maybe it's.
2: Oh, indeed. No, I think that I, I think that's for the obvious reason that that, uh, that that we know about, and it it does. It did have an impact, I, and you know, I, I'm almost tempted to say that one of the rem- looking at it now, from this perspective, what's remarkable was less the enormous impact demographic, cultural, moral, in the fullest sense of the word, uh, of Nazism and the Third Reich, Uh, but how remarkably quickly the Germans recovered from it. Now there are those who say they recovered from it by by repressing it, uh, and that's some truth to that. Uh, but within a relatively short period of time. If you'd, if, if you'd been in Braunschweig in 1945 and you asked yourself, Is this way, what's, what's, what's it gonna look like 20 years from now, or 30 years from now, you would have had trouble, I think, imagining that they would have come so fast. Uh, okay.
0: Before we conclude, I just wanted to share some reactions, Jim, to your talk. Um, It's very important to listen to what he was saying because of the subject matter itself. Uh, I also found myself listening to how he was saying it and to return to David Kennedy's remarks about, about him as a consummate teacher. Notice the way the phrase living in history found its way in and around the talk. Every once in a while things would be going along and living in history would appear. So you said, you might be going off on a trail, but no, you were actually circling around a, a continuing truth. That was a brilliant stroke. The other thing, uh, Jim, was, was uh, almost an aesthetic reaction to each sentence. Each sentence was so beautifully crafted. It just kind of ended in, an, in a lovely way. And I thought, oh, w- would you please stop? So I could, just, I could just enjoy the pleasure of that sentence <laughs> or that paragraph. Um, Again, a mark of a wonderful teacher. You want the person to stop and let you soak it in uh, before moving on. Uh, Unfortunately, we have to stop now, but not without thanking you enormously for your presentation.